What if you were able to sit down for lunch with some of the greatest leaders in the world? What would you ask? What would they say? Welcome to the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where you're invited to join us in learning the spiritual principles behind big success. Here's your host, Mike Lynch. One thing I think I know about you and about me is I'm looking for peace. That peace that it doesn't matter what I'm facing or what I'm going through, it's always accessible and it's always present. Well, that's what we're going to talk about today in episode 201 of the Lynch with a Leader podcast. If I've never met you before, my name is Mike, and it is my honor and my joy to welcome you on this journey to a non-anxious life, which is what we're going to be talking about today with Alan Faddling. Alan is a uh, second-time guest now on the podcast. This is his brand-new book, and what I love about Alan you are going to feel peaceful just when you get off the podcast because what he has to bring you, what he has to give you is from his soul. If you'll remember the last time Alan was on, his phrase, you can have a packed schedule with an unhurried soul, is very much in line with a non-anxious life in finding peace in the middle of this crazy world that we live in, you are in for a treat. We're going to be talking about misdirected energy, how God cares for you, practicing that presence of God in our lives. And there's just so much. And it really doesn't matter your walk. It really doesn't matter what you do for a living. You need what Alan is going to deliver, I promise you. And I just want to say this, man, so many people have told me like they've been binging, they've been going back to the very beginning of the podcast and listening, and that means the world to me. And I'll tell you what also means the world is when people take the time to leave a rating and review, because what it does is it does help others find their way to us. And so if you can hit pause right now, even and go to iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen and leave a rating or review, it means the world. So I want you to buckle up. This is a good one. And it's one you're probably going to want to listen to more than once because the stuff is just on point. So I want you to pull up a chair take out something to write with, and I want you to listen to my podcast with author, speaker, leader, but also guide into a non-anxious life, Alan Fadling. Hope you enjoy. Well, Alan, thank you so much for joining me again on this episode of Lynch with a Leader. It is an honor to have you again. I'm so glad to be able to be with you again, Mike. You know, we spent our last session talking about the unhurried life of a leader. You have a brand new book, which I am so excited about, called The Non-Anxious Life. Where do hurry and anxiety meet each other? And how are they enemies and friends. Talk to me about how these two worlds sort of coincide with each other. 
Yeah, so part of that is a personal story, and part of it is a, a ministry story. Um, when I proposed this book, we were a few weeks into the COVID uh, quarantine situation. I And my pitch for the book was, the more I talk with leaders about hurry, the more it sounds like anxiety. Like anxiety seems to be a pretty common variety of hurry for a lot of leaders. And, you know, sometimes that hurry has a, a paralyzing sort of effect. And sometimes it drives us like a fight as opposed to the flight side of it. But it's also a very personal story. Um, I realize my own journey with hurry has often been driven by my anxiety. And I come by my anxiety pretty honestly. I grew up in a home with a mom who... Uh, spent most of her childhood years in an orphanage, a Midwestern post-World War II orphanage. Well, you grow up in a place like that, you learn worry, you learn anxiety. And so it became my operating system. And I've been living with that. I'm in my 60s now. I've been living with that my whole adult life. And so this book, in some ways, was a book I needed. And I'm glad other people will get a chance to read it, too. Was it hard for you, Alan, to go back into a lot of that? Did it bring up a lot of emotions? As you began to write about things, we all know that Jesus said, and we all know that Paul wrote and Simon Peter wrote, did it unearth some things in you as you begin to unpack this topic? Yeah, I I did not realize that writing a book about a non-anxious life would be as anxious an experience as it was, <laughs> you know, I'm just being honest. Um, when, when you decide to lean into what has been your life's challenge, if you do it honestly, it's going to be hard. Yeah. And it was, I, I've shared with many people that this is by far of the five books I've now written the most personal and the most difficult book mm. that I've written. Uh, and the book I started writing and the book I ended up with are were two very different things. You know, I think I somehow imagined I could write a book about a non-anxious life from some plateau of having arrived <laughs> at the peaceful experience. And it looked a whole lot more like my wrestling with mm. God in my places of anxiety and trying to come to truth that worked in my life and that met me where I was. What changed the most? What changed the most from how it began to this finished product that I got? What changed the most in that process? I I think maybe the easiest way to describe it would be uh, it was it moved from a lot of theoretical to a lot mm. of personal. Mm. Like I just, God wouldn't let me get away with writing an interesting chapter about this facet of, you know, anxiety and peace. Uh, he was going to press me to to lean in and live what I was writing. And so sometimes I thought I was going to write and what I really had to do was live mm. and uh, work with God in some of these places. You know, so at, at one point, for example, I, I came to the realization, I'd never thought of it this way, that I imagined my anxiety was an asset. Like the way it drove me, the standards it pushed me to, like I thought, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't say it out loud, but it's like, I kind of imagined I needed it. And what would happen? Like, would I lose my edge if I didn't have my anxiety? Would I Would I still press in and, and work as hard? In, in, and it turns out, Anxiety is not the best fuel 
for doing the work of God, mm. even though it drove a lot of the things I did in ministry for many, many years. You know, that is a great line there, because I think the more driven we are, the more anxiety we probably live around and live with, but we can almost almost see it as a badge of honor. We can see it as a, that's what yeah. gets me. That's what gives me, and you said it, that's what gives me my edge. What would you say to that person? You do a lot of personal coaching. What would yeah. you say to that leader that goes, Alan, if I... If I find a peaceful life, that opposite of anxiousness is peace. If I find a peaceful life, I won't have the edge to stay ahead of my competitor in business. What would you tell them? Well, so I got a chance to speak to some leaders last week, most of whom are business uh, leaders. And that exact question came up. Hmm. And here's what I'd say. Remember that peace is very good friends with joy and it's very good friends with love. And peace, joy, and love, it sounds like, you know, a Christian hymn or something, <laughs> right? It's the fruit of the Spirit. But what I want to say is, this is kingdom energy. Like, the irony is anxiety, I, this is a, one of the things that uh, uh, kind of came in the writing is, I imagine that anxiety is the exact same as love, as care. Like, it proves I care about something. But what I've come to realize is my anxiety is a lot more like anxiety equals care minus God. Like my anxiety is almost a kind of practicing the absence of God, not practicing the presence of God. So what I want to say to somebody is the edge that you can have in the kingdom is going to be energized by joy, by love, by these kind, by hope. Like these actually are high energy sources. The question is, can you lead with a holy edge instead of an unholy edge? And do we know the difference between those two? Hmm. Do you think, and we're going to dive in your book here in a second. This is so fascinating to me. Do you think knowing all that you know, that you ever, a that you can ever arrive on this side of heaven at a completely non-anxious place. And they're talking about Alan, you can't speak for everybody else. Do you think yeah. no? And you listen, this is a treatise of what non-anxiousness looks like in scripture. You did such a great job going all through scripture. Do you think Alan will ever arrive at a place where there's not anxiety that you're battling dealing with? What do you think after learning all that you've learned? Yeah, I think it's a perfectly fair question. I think when I started writing it, I hoped that's exactly where I'd land. I'd hoped I'd finish the book and I'd land on, as I said, the plateau of peace, you know, and I'd just park there. And I think this is this is a more realistic thing to say. I think what I've learned is I don't have a great deal of power over how surprises evoke anxiety in me. Like it is a physical response that arises. But here's what I have learned. I don't have to live in the middle of it. Mm, I don't have mm. to be inundated by it. I've learned some practices and some perspectives that help me look at myself and look at my anxiety with a little bit of space. Like I can almost say, well, there it is. Yeah, that familiar pit in the stomach, that familiar tightness in the chest, that familiar shortness of breath, that familiar racing thoughts. That's what anxiety looks like for me. But maybe Jesus is right about it. And maybe... 
maybe I can kind of see it as like a red light on my dashboard rather than the air I breathe or the, or the water I swim in. Um, and so the, that ability to have a little bit of distance and the ability to say, okay, yeah, this, this uh, just arose in me. Uh, but maybe I don't want it taking the steering wheel. Maybe I'll just let it sit in the back seat. Still going to be there, but it doesn't have to run the show. And maybe there are other dynamics that will run the show a lot better. That's well said. Well said. And I love it because I think that there is a frustrating part of it when we go, God, I should have gotten this by now. And I feel <laughs> these things well. Like, right. I mean, I just did a two-week series on it. And the day after the series was faced with something and felt anxiousness. I'm like, I should have licked this by now. Why am I? <laughs> yeah. I just gave people the antidote for this. And I'm still dealing with it. You did such a great job. And so what I want to do is, is I think so many times in a book, you have four chapters broken out. You have some thoughts about non-anxiousness and a non-anxious life. And you broke them out by chapter. And they're very standalone and they very much tie together, which I enjoyed <laughs> a ton. Uh, it was very nonlinear in some <laughs> ways. But you, your, your first chapter, Anxiety is for the Birds, and you went into <laughs> Jesus's first sermon at the Sermon on the Mount when he talked about birds. Talk to mm -hmm. us about why you chose to begin your book this way and why you think Jesus talked about the birds so much. What would you say? Yeah, so I love the Sermon on the Mount. I just think it is an absolutely genius passage of Scripture. I think it's genius wisdom regardless. Um, and in that uh, Matthew 6 passage, you know, Jesus says, essentially, don't worry. Now, I don't think the spirit of that is, you knock that off. You stop it, you. Stop all that worrying. I think the spirit of what Jesus is saying, which is what I love about it, is, you know, you really don't have to. It's not helping you any, not doing you any good. It's not making your life one minute longer. It's not improving the quality of what you do one tiny bit. And so he uses this illustration, and I'm sitting here talking to you, but I can look out my window and I can see our bird feeders. Hmm. And literally, Jesus says, look at the birds. Do you see them out, out there desperately day after day, planting fields and harvesting fields and storing up lots and lots of extra for the future? I mean, they're not doing any of that kind of preparatory stuff. They're, they're not taking care of themselves. They're just, they're just receiving what they need from the hand of a generous creator. I wonder the degree to which we have a vision of our lives being lived in the presence of a generous creator. Mm -hmm. Like we have a father who loves to good, give good gifts to his children. And that's not mostly measured in wallets and closets and garages. That's, that's mostly measured in soul. Like God wants us to experience deep joy and profound love and guarding peace. And so I think the image of the birds, I've not once ever looked out my backyard and said, man, those birds look worried. Mm. They never do. They, they just look like they expect that today, like every other day of their lives, what they need will be there. 
And maybe I can expect the same. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That's either true or it's not true. Mm. I think it's true. I think it's a better way to think about my present and my future than anxiety suggests. And I love in the chapter how you said to do that, we have to slow down. We never notice the birds until we intentionally watch for them, correct? That's exactly right. I mean, you know, where I live, the temperatures are such that, you know, the birds are kind of out here all the all the time. But I can go, I could have gone and have gone weeks and weeks without seeing a single bird, mm-hmm. even though they're there. Uh, that's what a that's what a non-anxious life invites us to. That's what an unhurried life invites us to, to live more of our moments, to notice more of what God is doing and what God is giving. You, in your second chapter, you talked about the ones that have probably learned the most become mentors for us students, become mentors. And you you specifically spent some time with Paul, the Apostle Paul and Simon Peter. And you 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 said a couple statements. I don't want to read these and unpack them with you. My worries are God-given energies that are misdirected. Basically, you were saying we beat ourselves up with worry, but yet we're just really misdirecting energy. Talk about that real quick. That is a fabulous line. Mm. Uh, tell I'm me, so tell glad. Me, oh my gosh. Tell me where that came from. Well, I'm remembering a conversation I had with a counselor with whom I met for a season, pretty long season, actually. Anxiety was part of the conversation we were having over time. And that was something he told me. He says, never forget, anxiety is just, it's God-given energy, but it's pointed in the wrong direction. Mm. Because the reason that matters is, sometimes what I've imagined I could do is get rid of anxiety, like make it evaporate, make it go away better. And this, to me, this is Paul's strategy in Philippians 4. Instead, I can redirect it. Mm. In a sense, instead of ruminating about the stuff that makes me feel worried, I can pray about the stuff that makes me feel worried. I can take that energy and point it in the direction of the of, of the God who is always with me. And that's why I think then Paul's strategy, and if you, you know, don't worry about anything, but in everything with prayer and petition, thanksgiving, all of that, let your request be made known to God. Point that anxious energy toward God. And if you do that, if you learn how to do that, you're going to find that peace comes along and it guards your emotions. It guards your thoughts. It it protects you from being over overrun by that anxious energy. So I, to me, that's the spirit of what Paul learned from Jesus and how he put it in his own words in his letter to the Philippians. You know, you talked about the Desert Fathers and how they remind us that anxiety is the death of prayer, but true prayer, that communion of walking with God is the death of anxiety. How far have we moved away from those Desert Fathers? Those ones that sort of plowed the fields of faith that we walk in now. How far has our society moved from that? Well, um... Pretty far, yeah. <laughs> I think, um, because there was a genius about these men and women. You know, they had responded to a kind of officialized Christian faith in the Roman Empire. Instead of being a Christian, being hard, it was the easiest thing in the world to do. 
which wasn't much of a challenge and it wasn't much of a journey uh, in terms of spiritual growth. And so they they saw themselves as following Jesus out into the desert, into the wilderness, as, as Jesus had done at the beginning of his ministry. The other genius for them was they weren't focused on the outer stuff. Mm. They weren't just mm. focused on behavior stuff, like fixing that that habit or you know, taking on this little life hack. It wasn't all outwardly oriented. They were dealing with souls. The problems in our lives start at the center of who we are. Like you got to deal with the root system. If you're always dealing with the periphery of your problems, you never get to the roots. You never get to lasting solutions, which are the fruit of lasting transformation. So they weren't talking, for example, about deadly sins. They were talking about deadly thoughts. Mm. They wanted to deal with stuff before it became behavior and before it became language spoken to another. They wanted to deal with it as things that were happening in the human soul. And if you could address it there, well, then it wouldn't bear the fruit, the bad fruit of some of the behaviors that are a natural outcome. You know, and you even you translate that into the life of Simon Peter, one of the other mentors, one of the students that became a mentor, and he wrote, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him. And you really unpack this phrase in the book, because he cares for you. What changed about Simon Peter from the one that was the brash, bold, outspoken disciple to the one that's writing this towards the end of his life. What had he learned about Jesus during those years? Well, one thing I've wondered, I've wondered whether or not some of that brashness wasn't rooted in anxiety. Boy, that is a good place. Mm. I think that may be, it may have been rooted in some other stuff too, of course, but I think that was probably part of it. And what I would say is that over time, uh, Peter learned what I think God wants all of us to learn, is that we are more loved than we can imagine, and that God's love is always bigger than our worries or what it is that provokes worries in us, and that all of the things anxiety predicts about the future uh, I've just found anxiety is mostly a false prophet. It is not the most wonderful counselor. Mm. And I have spent more of my life and time listening to the counsel of anxiety to, to very poor ends and very thin outcomes. So I think that was part of what Peter learned. I think he had learned to live in the, the peaceful way of Jesus. And I think that had begun to shape his assumptions and his expectations and his ways. Uh, and I think that that shows up then in the letters he writes toward the end of his life. I have never thought about Simon Peter's anxiety coming out in the form of brashness. I've never thought about that. But that makes perfect sense for him to write what he wrote. You know, mm-hmm. that he, that he so. learned that prayer. Makes per, it makes perfect sense perfect sense. You you went on in the book and you talked about Paul beginning his letters with grace and peace. What do you think, and you spent a whole chapter unpacking this, what do you think it looks like for Paul in his mind, and then even for us today, to live life in grace and peace? So think about Paul. Think about his Pharisee beginnings, his early training. 
he was about as rigorous a guy as you can imagine. He says so, you know, his letter to the Philippians. Intense. But as a result, you really got a sense that Paul felt like he had to earn his life. Hmm. Like he had to earn his keep. He had to prove something to God. And so his rigorous religious uh, practices were a big part of that. And then to be met by Jesus on that road to Damascus and to just be invited into something he'd been fighting for his whole young adult life, I think grace just floored him. I think the idea that his life was a gift instead of a paycheck overwhelmed him. And so, you know, in the way letters would have been written in those days, you had to start them somehow, and something like grace and peace would have been a common sort of dear Bill way to start a letter. But I think the fact that this is the way um, Paul starts his letters to every one of these communities that he has a, a loving relationship with, I just think grace and peace is an amazing couple. Grace is that vision of God's empowering presence, God's generous provision, God's goodness always going ahead of us, and then peace being the fruit of that. Mostly my anxiety is a vision of life that is graceless, like I won't have enough. God won't be there. Uh, I'll have to take care of myself. That's what anxiety keeps suggesting, and it's just wrong. It's, it's a mistaken vision of who God is. So I think that's part of what happened in Paul's life and, and why then grace, every one of his letters starts with the language of grace. Every one of his letters ends with the language of grace. It is the atmosphere of his vision of living the Christian life. Why is grace so hard? It's, it's the most amazing gift in the world, but it's so hard for us to accept. In the world that we live in. Why do you think we struggle so bad accepting the grace of God and that he truly cares for us? Why do do you think that's a struggle? And you you unpack. So in the pages of this book, you spend chapters unpacking this. Why do you think we struggle with that so much? Well, there are probably a number of reasons. Um, One of them is not a fun answer. Uh, to be honest, I think there's a variety of a kind of pride that um, grace and pride just are oil and water. They just don't work together. Humility and grace, they uh, they work together very, very well. We don't like humility. Sounds bad. Sounds like a doormat. Sounds like a, you're you're turning yourself into a nothing. <laughs> Nothing could be further from the truth. Humility is just living in reality. Humility is just being grounded. Humility is just seeing your life as it is and not being so focused on your life. It's not, it's not uh, talking bad about yourself. It's just not focusing on yourself so much, which is what a gracious vision of God helps you do. Like, my life is a gift from God. My work is a gift from God. The people in my life are a gift from God. The opportunities that happen to fill today in my calendar are gifts from God. That's all grace. It's all, there's so many good things in my life I have not earned, but I want to pretend I have. I want to imagine that I made it happen. I did it my way, you know, to take Sinatra's lyrics. Um, That's not the way of the kingdom. The Mm. way of the kingdom is better than that. It is more abundant than that. And so 
I don't think we understand what grace is. It's not just a doorway that gets us into this kingdom life. It is a pathway, every step of which is a response to God's generosity. So well said. That is so well said. You know, you you spend some time in the book talking about practicing the presence of God. What are daily intentional habits for you and that you would encourage? So if a in a, in a young executive, a, a male, a female, they're sitting down with you and they're going, okay, I buy this. I want this. My, my life is anxiety riddled, but mm. I want to practice the presence of God. What does that look like in 2024? How, do, how does Alan do that? What would you advise somebody to do? Yeah, there's there's quite a few practices that have helped me. Some of them are more intensive and more time uh, involved. Some of them are very simple and daily. So I would think one of the, the simplest practices that has been so good for my soul is simply gratitude. Mm. Like in a sense, gratitude is my response to grace. The more gratitude is seasoning the spirit of my days, the more I realize how graced my life is. Like every time I say thank you, I'm noticing grace. And so that's why I think Paul, so many different times in his letters, talks about be thankful, be thankful, and 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 be thankful. You know, he he can't seem to say it enough. Gratitude has really helped me because then I find that I my vision of my life is I am, I am in the presence of a generous God all the time. That's been critical. I also think that there are practices of disengagement, practices like solitude or silence or retreat that are not work-oriented, uh, that are not doing-focused. So I need moments in my days, in my weeks, in my months, where instead of doing six more things, I listen to the invitation of the psalm writer, be still and know that I am God. That, for many of us as leaders, may be the hardest command to obey. Like, be busy, no problem. I'm I'm with you. I'm there, man. I can do that all day long. But I'll tell you what, some of my busy has been a way of avoiding what God's trying to do in my life. Mm -hmm. And you can't do that quite as easy in be still, be quiet. There you've got to listen. There you got to pay attention. And actually, that's such good news. Because again, it helps you get, it helps you have a more real vision of who you are and who God is and what God's inviting you to. You know, I love when we meet Christ, there's a surrender. There's a surrendering of my way and of my future and going, okay, God, you've, you've got me. You, I'm all in with you. But this pathway is a pathway of surrender. This mm -hmm. pathway is a daily turning to the Lord and saying, I'm yours. And you you talk about steward and owner. We always think of that with our finances. I've yeah. never necessarily not thought about it with my life. Tell me where that thought process came for you from. Yeah, so, you know, stewardship, strictly speaking, it is. It's a person who would be responsible for the possessions or the resources of another. Yes, absolutely. But my life is not my own, it says somewhere in Scripture. That's stewardship implications. 
My life is not my own. I have been bought with a price. Um, and mm. the thing I want to say about dynamics like surrender or like dependence, for example, we think that's just bad news. We think that's a loss for us. Nothing could be further from the truth. A lot of times my anxiety is rooted in a whole lot of over-responsibility. Like I'm trying to be somebody I'm not. I'm trying to take responsibility for something that isn't mine to be in charge of. And so part of what surrender is, it's again, it's right-sizing my life. It doesn't diminish me. It just makes, uh, it gives me a more realistic vision of what God has actually commanded me to do and what God has actually invited me uh, into. So I think we resist language like surrender. You know, Americans don't surrender. What are you talking about? You know, that's not who we are. Never has been. Well, I get that. But when it comes to the kingdom of God, surrender is a wonderful invitation, not a burdensome obligation. You spend a chapter talking about confronting the giant, and you tell the great story of David and Goliath. What's been the biggest giant you've ever had to confront in your journey, your journey towards a non-anxious life? And probably the giant didn't die with one stone. He probably had some uh, extra, he had some nine, he had some cat lives, he had some nine lives. He kept coming back. What's been the biggest giant you've had to face? You know, I could probably answer that in a few different ways, but the way I'll I'll focus it is just the sometimes overwhelming feeling of anxiety that will arise in me. The physicality of it, the way it seems to hijack my brain and my thoughts the way it seems to overwhelm and flood my emotions, like my anxiety in all of the ways it arises and, and surprises me feels incredibly Goliath-like. Mm. And sometimes I have just felt, you know, I've been one of those people who would say, well, I'm just an anxious person. I just That's just how, who I am. It's just, I don't have any control, can't help it. What I'm grateful for is, yes, I am a person who sometimes is flooded with physical, mental, emotional anxiety. But I don't have to let Goliath take the wheel. And I can, like David, cultivate a more God-drenched imagination mm -hmm. rather than continuing to practice a Goliath-dominated imagination. And there's such a difference. You know, so for me, I already said this line, but David, right? David and Goliath, David, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is shepherding me. The Lord shepherded him as a young man, taking care of his flock. He was able to deal with bears and lions. What's the difference between them and this Goliath fella? Um, my anxiety has been the Goliath. And realizing that my anxiety is not bigger than God at practical levels, not theoretical levels, not Hallmark card levels, but realistic lived ways has been my David Goliath experience. You know, we use a phrase a lot, never forget in the darkness what you know to be true in the light. When you face the most anxiety-riddled moments, when it comes out of nowhere, when the door opens and life changes, the phone call comes and life changes, 
what's what is something in scripture that you always go to? It's you may forget everything else. You may not remember anything else in this book and scripture, but you always remember this one thing. What is that for Alan? Well, I quite literally, I'm thinking of moments. I, I'm thinking of a moment. I'm at the John Wayne Airport here in Orange County. I am a half an hour from getting on a plane for India. This was just before uh, COVID kind of shut down a lot of international travel. And I'm I'm in the uh, entryway. I'm getting ready to walk through security. And then I check my pockets and there is no wallet in my pocket. There's no wallet. Therefore, there is no way for me to pay for anything I'm going to have to do on this two-week trip I'm getting ready to take to the other side of the planet. Now, at one level, big deal. You know, somehow I'll survive, I'm sure. But I will tell you, uh, it was like anxiety on a 95 out of 100 for me. My brain just shut down. My emotions flooded me. I mean, I just thought the world was ending. Mm. <clears throat> That's how it felt. But I had been in the habit at that time when I noticed anxiety rising, sometimes very loudly, of just rehearsing, okay, wait a minute, the Lord is my shepherd, mm. I shall not want. I sometimes would say it, the Lord is my shepherd. This is probably going to turn out better than my anxiety predicts. Mm. And I remember I'm literally standing there, and about one minute later, like a, a calm came over me. It's like, the Lord's going to shepherd me. Two weeks from now, I'm going to look back at that trip to India, and I'm going to see all the good things God's done. It will not have been a disaster. It will not have been ruined by my forgetfulness of leaving my wallet on my nightstand at home before coming to the airport. So in that moment, I realized, you know what? I've got my passport. I, I know I couldn't go to India if I didn't have my visa and all that stuff. So I've got that on hand. I just don't have a way to pay for anything. And my wife was only 10 minutes away from the airport heading back home. I just said, I gave her a call. Hey, would you bring me your uh, credit card? I'm going to need it for the next two weeks. Solved. I'm just telling you that anxiety could have completely mm. uh, blown up my ability to function, my ability to just come to the simple conclusions and solutions that that were right there in front of me. My anxiety, um, the way it hits me can be very paralyzing. I'm more of a flight than a fight responder to anxiety sometimes even freeze. And um, there are a lot of reasons for that. That's a whole nother podcast conversation, I think. But, um, but being able to, to, to rehearse that the Lord is shepherding me right now, that God's caring presence, guiding presence, providing presence, counseling presence, that is more real than this noisy, overwhelming anxiety that has just arisen in me. Rehearsing that over time has helped immensely. We have an enemy in this world. On this side of heaven, we have uh, we have an enemy that is at work. How does he use anxiety in a believer's life? So we're most people that listen to this podcast are faith. There are people of faith. They're trying to walk it out in their families and in their businesses and where they serve daily. How does the enemy use anxiety against us? And what are common things he says to us through it to keep us chained to it? I think the basic 
strategy of the enemy of our souls is to distance us from God. And as I said earlier, my anxiety, I realize, is a kind of practicing the absence of God. Uh, our, the enemy, enemy of our souls capitalizes on that. When anxiety is noisiest and then when I give it the wheel of my life, you'd think that God's caring presence was a million miles from me. And so that's why Peter says, you know, cast your cares on God because God cares for you. It's, it's anxious cares being um, cared for by God's unfailing care. So that's why anxiety can be such a challenge for us. It has a way of distancing us from a sense that God is with us and that God cares. I think one of the reasons, for example, in our culture today that anxiety is so high is that so few have a sense of God with us and that God with us is our best good. Mm. And I think when you live in a culture where God at best is this deist creator that that got the universe spinning and going, and that's about all his interest level is, I think it's an inevitable uh, recipe for anxiety. Final question of the day. You know, I've got Randy Alcorn coming on talking about heaven, which I cannot wait to talk oh. about heaven and in such a great book he wrote on that. <laughs> when, when Alan is in heaven for five minutes and the Lord allows us to peel back the curtain to look back at our lives, to look back at the journey we've been on. What do you think you will think in those moments in heaven about what you wished you would have felt about God's presence while you were here? What do you think? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's something to think about, isn't it? quite a remarkable idea that there would be a moment like that, and there will be. I have a feeling that in my looking back, I'll wonder why I found it so hard to trust and rely on the love God had for me, why I settled for such a thin understanding and confidence in that love, that the things that so troubled me, um, that so worried me, were so tiny, even though in the moment they felt so huge. I think even right now, that continues to feel like the invitation God is extending. Don't you know that you're my beloved daughter, my beloved son, that I'm so pleased in you? And that God says those things not as like a paycheck we have to keep earning, but as a gift we have already received and can just treasure. I just have a feeling that's going to be an important part of my my refreshed vision when I see things as they are. Wasn't kidding, was I? Man, that is just good stuff. It was so funny. I got off that call that day, and I walked in. I was talking to my wife, and I said, you know what? I don't know, Alan, other than the two times we've been able to spend some time together on the podcast. But, man, does that guy just put my soul at ease. And there's just so much richness. The best thing you can do is go pick up his book. I'm just telling you, it's one that you will be glad that you've got because you're going to mark it up. You're going to highlight it. You're going to you're going to use it. You're going to pull clips out of it and phrases out of it. So, so good. 
Alan is such a great follow and such a great leader of leaders. Thank you so much, Alan, for joining us. All the notes, all our links are there in the show notes to do access those. Well, our next episode, we get to sit down with a guy that does nothing slow, Mark Miller. Mark Miller has been driving the leadership of Chick-fil-A for 40 plus years and now is in a brand new season where he is seeking to reach millions and make them the leaders that God's called them to be. And we're going to be talking about his brand new book, Uncommon Greatness. And it's going to be a good one. And don't forget, next Monday, we'll have our takeaways episode with Casey. Well, once again, thanks for joining today. Share this with a friend if it was helpful to you. But know this, it means the world that you spent time with us. So let's go love God, let's love people, and let's live sent and make a difference in the spaces and places that he has put us. Thank you for listening to the Lynch with a Leader podcast with your host, Mike Lynch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help more people hear it by subscribing and leaving a review wherever you may be listening. For full episode notes and more spiritual leadership resources, visit MikeLynch.com.